And specifically, we're awakening to the causes of happiness and the causes of unhappiness. You could say, or we can say that of all the objects of awareness, of all the things to pay attention to and learn about, the most important thing to be mindful of is the causes for happiness and the causes for unhappiness. I ended last night with the comment or the point the Buddha made that he often emphasized the dangers of sense pleasures before he talked deeply about the joy of renunciation, the joy of letting go. We need to uh, have a sense of how confusing it is for us because as I mentioned in one of the small groups, it's obvious, I think, sense pleasures are pleasurable. If it were, you know, if sense pleasures were unpleasurable, it would be relatively easy to not seek lasting happiness through sense experience. But it really does feel good when we get that warm bath or we get that warm hug or we get the next pleasant sense experience. And we only see the initial moments, you know, we only feel or know that initial experience of pleasantness and the great relief of no longer having to crave it because now it's here, it's landed. I finally got, you know, we've been looking forward to some date and then it arrives. Looking forward to getting into our bed and finally it's 9.45 and we're in our bed or whatever. And the part of the heart that was wanting, wanting, wanting that then ceases. The craving ceases. It feels so nice that the craving has ceased for a while. So just to review, we talked about the very real happiness of getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. We talked about the very real happiness of being free from regret and the very real happiness of a mind free from the hindrances, not agitated by the hindrances. All of these four kinds of happinesses are dependent on causes and conditions. When there are the appropriate causes and conditions, then we do have the happiness of non-regret, or we do have the happiness of a non-agitated mind, or we have the happiness of having what we want, or having gotten rid of what we don't want. But when those causes and conditions, those circumstances change, then that particular happiness goes away. So it's fragile in that way. It's conditioned. And then we've been talking about this last few, few days, the happiness of the unconditioned which we could just, in a more dynamic way, is the happiness of non-grasping. It's so simple in a way, the Buddhist teachings. Clinging or grasping is suffering. Non-grasping is non-suffering or happiness. So the happiness, the spiritual happiness we seek, is the happiness of non-grasping. When the mind or the heart is not grasping, then we say it's an unconditioned happiness because the non-grasping refers to any object of experience. So whatever's happening, 
outer circumstances, inner circumstances, the mind is relating with non-grasping. So that if it is a happiness, if non-grasping is a happiness, then it's unconditioned because where does non-grasping not go? It goes everywhere. It's available in any moment. What is it that we could, what would be in the way of not grasping? We could practice not grasping right now. We don't need to postpone it. We don't need to wait for favorable circumstances to practice non-grasping. It's really meant to be, um, it's understood as the very nature of the mind is to not grasp. I'll talk more about this a little bit later. So we talked about these five, and then last night I I talked about the spiritual journey. Like So if we're really interested in this fifth kind of happiness, then we're in the realm of spiritual practice. And there's a particular shape to spiritual practice. It always begins with some kind of disenchantment with what we in Buddhism call a worldly way of being. A worldly way of being is our minds, this mind, gravitating towards uh, the happiness that is conditioned. Because it seems more available, we trust it. We know it works. (coughs) I mean, I bet each of us could think of 15 to 10,000 things that if they arose right now would make us happy to some degree. We could just list them all. And then if we would be accurate, like if that thing actually happened, there would be a little bump, a little moment of pleasure, which would be appreciated to some degree as a kind of happiness. And so it, this uh, habit of craving for those pleasant experiences, it's uh, in a superficial way, it's empowering because... It's our, in a simplistic, superficial way, it's our way of demonstrating we know something about this life, this world. You know, when I crave being home, being done for the day, being in my bed, or reading a book, or having a cup of tea, or whatever, it's like... uh, the, the little juice I get just in craving it, you know, on the surface, craving is actually exciting a little bit. Underneath, it's all a knot, you know, it's all contraction. But on the surface, it's juicy, imagining that. And it's juicy precisely because I feel empowered. Like, well, I know how to make myself happy. Get this, want that. And we think, you know, we imagine that uh, craving is somehow functional, like it actually leads to that. But it just, it's just what it is. It's a contraction in the mind and heart and body. So we talked about the spiritual path as being, beginning with disenchantment, beginning to poke holes in the uh, addiction or in the fixation we have on craving as a kind of personal power. It's this you know, great fallacy that 
when we crave something, and I'm, you know, craving in this context also means trying to get rid of something, right? It's wanting things to be other than what they are. So there's this fallacy that when we crave something, we're actually doing something that serves happiness. Doesn't it seem that way? Even, you know, craving enlightenment, craving freedom. It just feels functional, like we're doing something productive when we crave. I started to see through this when I was young in different ways. I mentioned, I think, maybe at this retreat about Christmas, nights before Christmas, but uh, also days before going on a family vacation. And and just sitting there in bed often, or sometimes when some, the family was going to do something fun or we were going to have our cousins over, my mom would make us take a nap, which is <laughs> pure to- torture. I mean, in hindsight, it was clear. She, she kind of had a uh, uh, nervous temperament having seven kids. And uh, I'm sure it was just like, get out of my hair. <laughs> Go take a nap. But, you know, so I wouldn't, I wasn't sleepy at all. So I'd lie there craving, you know, like wanting time to pass, wanting my cousins to show up, you know, wanting this big family gathering to happen. And, uh, and that was the beginning of poking holes into the illusion that craving is functional because it was so clearly painful and so clearly didn't have a result, you know, except for the pain. It didn't speed up time. It didn't make something happen. It was actually insane and dysfunctional and painful. So this is why the Buddha emphasizes the danger in uh, sense pleasures, because it doesn't do anything and... The only way we know how to alleviate the pain of craving, like craving initially when we crave something, it's sort of what stands out is more the juiciness because our mind doesn't really know the difference between reality and its imagination. So when I imagine being home in bed, there's a little bit of that experience in the imagination of it. It feels nice, you know, especially if I really work on, you know, the image or the feeling of being there. But as you know, we have to keep amping it up, and at some point, even though we don't want it to happen, at some point the stress of craving is more apparent than any juice we get it, get from it. So what do we do? Well, we find something else to crave that will have the initial freshness, the initial juiciness. So we we imagine or we want something else. Even something seemingly good, like, I want to stop craving. We imagine, like, not craving anything. But that, as an imagination, is stressful too. So we keep hopping from one craving to another, always, in a sense, feeding off of the freshness, the vividness of the initial part of the craving. That seems real, that seems possible. Seems like, like a personal discovery. Oh yeah, this could happen. I could do this. I could set in motion. 
I could make this happen, or this will happen, I'd like this to happen. Maybe if this worked out this way, it would all be great. So we're like jumping from one craving to the next, and it's such a tenuous place, and underneath the surface of the juiciness is just contraction. And the reason that it's dangerous is that once we're in that addictive cycle, the only thing that makes sense is to imagine the next thing that's going to save us. And a lot of us in our spiritual practices are basically doing the same thing. The next sit, the next retreat, the next best, you know, finding the best teacher, the next teacher, or whatever it might be. That something's going to save me. So we're craving the thing that's going to save. And it's exactly the opposite instinct than a settling an opening, an honest meeting of how it is in the body, in the mind, in the heart. Ajahn Chah says, if you are still following your likes and dislikes, you haven't even begun to practice. And another place, he says, if your house is on fire, where do you put the water? You don't want to go off somewhere where it's quieter, where you're not being offended by smoke or flames. You put the water where the fire is to put out the fire. So this is why we have to emphasize craving and the dangers of craving. I mentioned Ajahn Jayasaro's article, I think, uh, the other day. And he's uh, one of the senior Western teachers in the Ajahn Chah tradition, a Buddhist monk, Westerner, but has lived mostly in Thailand, still lives in Thailand. And he tells a story that other monks who practiced with Ajahn Chah has, have told. First, he mentions that the word for training, uh, which literally means going against your desires, uh, in common usage in Thailand is the word for torture. Because it's torturous to go against our desires. But we can't really understand what craving, grasping is while continually believing in it or acting on it, acting it out. To really understand the nature, the consequence of grasping, we have to resist it or we have to not act it out. And uh, he, he talks about how, fortunately, Ajahn Chah was a, a really uh, powerful teacher because he said otherwise everybody would have left because of this torturing, what he did. I mean, there are so many examples of this that some of the Western monks have told, like, you know, they'd get one meal a day, they'd go off, and it was a pretty uh, impoverished part of Thailand, so they didn't get very good food to begin with. But then when they got back to the monastery, Ajahn Chah would make them mix everything together in one big pot. And then the monks would be served from that great mixture. So all the different curries, rice, whatever they got, just got put in a big pot. So that it was barely palatable, but enough to sustain them. Good enough for the body to be healthy. 
And the example that Ajahn Jayasaro mentions in this article is how uh, the unbeknownst to them, they some days they would just have to work from their main meal, which was at around 10 in the morning, or ended around 10 in the morning, and, uh, you know, into the evening. So the bell would ring, and that would mean, okay, it's a work day. But the positive side is they got a sweet drink in the evening. And when you're not getting much sweets or pleasant sense experiences, especially for the newer people, it was a huge deal to get something sweet. And so there they would be working, you know, whatever it was, clearing a path or sweeping or doing a building project and working, working, working. And finally, you know, the hot, sweet drink arrives. But Ajahn Chah would pretend like he doesn't see that the lay people have brought out the drink and just keep them working until, you know, it's all cold. And he gives like an hour and a half later. And then he asks the person, oh, the drinks are here. (laughs) And you can just imagine like what the mind does in a situation like that. Because maybe even if there's a semblance like, oh yeah, he's just training us. I mean, maybe you even have a little bit of the wherewithal. But it is really torturous when things don't go our way. So it's like, imagine how, we don't have to imagine, we know what happens when traffic appears. Even though we know, I mean, nobody's really at fault, but it can feel like somebody is personally torturing us if we have something we have to do, or even if we don't have something we have to do. It feels like a, an offense, like, and we really want to hurt somebody often. It's just interesting. So, uh, uh, you, you probably, some of you probably read uh, Carlos Castaneda's books about Don Juan. And he talked about petty tyrants and how when one arrives in your life, how you really want to be grateful for that particular event or circumstance or person that make, that is really hard to bear. Because then that's our place to observe the force of grasping, wanting this to be other than what it is. Or you have a physical ailment. You know, one of those nudgy kind of things that isn't going to kill you, isn't life-threatening, but is really unpleasant. Or just getting old. Or being a little cold. And just to notice, or a little hot, notice how we are with all that. This is what Ajahn Jayasaro says then. You can't really see the nature of craving until you go against it, or until you're in the fortunate position to have someone help you or compel you to go against it. If you're in a boat on a swiftly flowing stream, you're not really aware of of how vast the river is or how quickly the water is flowing until you try to paddle against the current. Ajahn Chah talked about Dhamma as knowing just the right amount of effort to resist craving. Knowing how much is the right amount of effort is the middle way. Otherwise, you know, without the middle way, otherwise we think 
the approach, once we see that craving is destructive, is to crave not craving. That's not the middle way. You know, that's like uh, we want to cross over the river and we think we're smart, we'll just go right into the river, you know, upstream. But we'll never get across. And the other way is just to not see the danger in craving and just to be swept along the other way. So the right amount of effort is to, to get across is, you know, not even to go straight across, but maybe lean into it a little bit. So that's why uh, maybe initially in practice we're not looking for irritants or grit, but maybe later in practice we develop a, a respect uh, hard-earned respect for the difficult parts of life because it helps us see the craving. Because remember, happiness, the ultimate happiness, is non-grasping. But non-grasping depends on seeing grasping. There's no realization of non-grasping without seeing grasping. Remember that the way the Buddha uh, understands, the way an awake person understands this, is that it essentially there's no problem here. But problems are born when there's a somebody grasping. So because that that is itself what creates the problem, the only solution is the cessation of that. We don't need to fix the world. There's nothing wrong with the world. I know that from our relative point of view, it's almost blasphemy to say that. And on a relative level, clearly there are some things that are wrong with this world. But in terms of suffering and the end of suffering, the end of suffering arises when the heart ceases to grasp. That is the happiness of non-grasping, of course. So how do we how do we realize that happiness if not by illuminating the grasping? The, the grasping has to be illuminated. We have to orient around the experience of grasping. So uh, whenever there is suffering, dukkha, stress not being perfectly happy, then we, it should just beg the question, okay, there's some attachment, there's some grasping. There's no way I could be suffering just from some circumstance alone, like it's really cold outside, or I don't know if I'm going to have enough money to take care of myself. I mean, even really provocative things that from a relative level seem like a real problem. But if there's suffering, then there's a mental component to it. There's something going on in the mind that we call grasping. And grasping arises from wrong view or wrong thinking. Basically, we think grasping is functional, is appropriate. So that helps. Because then, like we have this alarm clock called suffering and then 
when they're suffering, we're cued to look for wrong thinking and grasping. And what do we need to do? We don't even need to uh, get rid of the wrong thinking and the grasping. We just need to see it clearly until the mind understands that letting go needs to happen. It's not about personally letting go as much as it is as, as understanding that that thinking and grasping, which are really the same thing, they're not two different things, that they, that it's, uh, you know, dysfunctional, not helping. We have to sustain that understanding and then letting go happens. Did you just say that thinking and grasping are essentially the same thing? Well, they reflect each other, right? Where does the grasping come from? The activity of getting tight, it comes from a view or that wrong thinking, that wrong view. And uh, the pain of the grasping stimulates or triggers the wrong thinking because like, of course I need to do something because I'm hurting. Because it feels personal, the pain. And wisdom arises thought also. So it's more like right thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That would you call that suffering too? Right thinking? No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it's wrong view and grasping. Right view, right thinking, and non-grasping, right? Because often, see, remember, there, like I said a few minutes ago, there isn't a problem with the world. The problem is with this particular activity of thinking and understanding. That is the source and the resolution of the problem. So, the solution, like the, the image of Ajahn Chah said, like if you want to put out a fire, you got to put the water where the fire is. So if the problem is wrong thinking, wrong view, and grasping, then it's right there that needs to be turned around with right thinking, non-grasping, right? So this is, this is why you can't just leave it alone. You know, like if we're, <clears throat> suffering human being, it's it's incorrect to lay out this idea that it's all perfect. It's not perfect. We're a suffering human being. So it needs an intervention, but the intervention has to be right where the problem is. That's what needs to be transformed. The activity there. And so the thought that, oh yeah, this grasping needs to be abandoned, replaces the thought, you know, I want that. If we turn that into more grasping, then it doesn't work. You know, I'm going to get rid of this. We personalize the problem again. But it's just recognize, that's what right thought does, is it recognizes where the problem is. Oh, there's a fire here. And it's really that right thinking, that right view is what prevents the mind from grasping because 
it sees that grasping is the problem, and it it it, it uh, like pulls the plug out from that tendency to grasp, including grasping at being done with it, which is you know the tendency you want to put it down. We always are, you know, putting it outside of ourselves, the suffering. But we have to see that it's right here. Like uh, Casey at the end of the community practice intensive a week ago, Thursday night, um, told the story about Gurdjieff, who had a spiritual center in France, and evidently there was somebody really obnoxious difficult to be around who was at the community and uh, nobody liked him and eventually he kind of got the message and left and then the spiritual teacher tracked him down in Paris and offered to pay him money to come back <laughs> because having them around it's like really seeing that it isn't this obnoxious difficult person it's the mind it's the mind grasping at perfection I mean, I, I, I'm not kidding. I probably have seen this a couple hundred times today. Um, my mind grasping at some view of perfection, like when something gets taken care of, when my life, when I change, when I exercise more, when I'm done with the retreat, when I've got my to-do list caught up, I've responded to emails that were sent more than a month ago. <laughs> then. And it's just that same game that's justifying grasping in the heart, thinking that the problem are these things not being done, for example, as opposed to the grasping itself is the cause of suffering. Grasping is the cause of suffering. Non-grasping is the resolution of suffering. But we have to, we have to see this now, it's not like we have to see it a thousand times. There's an interesting thing I remember Steve Armstrong talked about once. We just need to see it really clearly once. Because the mind generalizes, you know, when it has a fear or has a desire for something. And if we really see that clearly, that desire or that fear, and we see it for what it is, and we see it cease, then it, it basically teaches us something about all desires and all fears, which is that they will cease on their own. We don't need to do anything about a craving or a desire for it to cease. Because we're going to, given the ways our mind, the way that our mind is conditioned, we're going to continue to be stimulated. You know, things are going to frighten us. Things are going to attract us. And that could be easily, easily become fuel for grasping, wanting. Oh, where we imagine becoming the person who has that or becoming the person who's escaped that danger. But instead, whatever just got triggered, whatever that feeling is that just got triggered in the heart, it can be observed for what it is. It's unpleasant. It's not self. It comes and it goes. It ceases. Without us having to do anything like crave or grasp, it will cease. So this is, even though it came up hundreds of times today, 
not every time when one of those thoughts or images came up did my mind invest in grasping. Sometimes I just felt the very ordinary uncomfortableness of desire or fear until it ceased. And it's amazing how provocative our minds can be. I mean, my mind, I mentioned doubt the other night, you know, my mind can create really, you know, like horror films about, you know, the worst scenarios. And it's like, uh, I think the more we practice, the mind is going to be even more provocative. Like, what, what will get your attention? What will cause or elicit grasping? And it's like, are we up to the challenge? of what our mind can create for us. And so that no matter what the mind creates, the most enticing possibility, becoming a radiant saint that uh, everybody adores, or the worst, you know, making a complete fool out of ourselves in front of the people we really want to respect us. But we just don't bite. We just feel the yuckiness for however long that lasts, which if we're not feeding it, it isn't very long actually that that lasts. It has its trajectory, it's there, it's yucky, and then it's gone. And it truly ceases without a remainder unless the mind gets becomes identified with it and starts to feed it through its grasping, clinging, identifying. Another Ajahn Jayasaro story, he talked about how, uh, you know, he was in uh, England first and uh, practicing with Ajahn Sumedho, and of course Ajahn Sumedho and a few others had spent a lot of time with Ajahn Chah and considered him a great teacher, so Ajahn Jayasaro thought, well, I just need to go to Thailand to practice with this great teacher, but they started getting some uh, letters from some of the other Westerners there talking about how they basically worked all the time. You know, their work projects, they no time to meditate, no time to study. And Ajahn Jayasara started to get a little cold feet, like, well, maybe there's a better place to go in Thailand, you know, and asking around, like, what other monasteries could I go to that might be more suitable? And Ajahn Sumedho says to him, another Western monk, you know, don't look for the perfect place. There isn't one. And this is part of the thing about grasping is that it always seems like, okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna reach for the moon, you know, want all my fears to go away or all the my desires to be but I just need a suitable place to do the practice. And this is like how the mind fools itself, like this is not the place to practice non grasping. First I'll grasp want the right place, and then I'll practice (laughs) non-grasping. See, it's really funny when we say it out loud, but we do this all the time. I mean, how many times today have we manipulated the schedule because it wasn't quite appropriate to practice non-grasping? Right? Because that's what we're here to do. We're here practicing non-grasping, but it's a little cold in the Dharma Hall, so I'll go, or it's... uh, 
you know, the, the sits are a little long, so I'll go do this, or there's too much walking, so I'll do this. Or, And I'm not saying that people shouldn't adapt and adjust the schedule, you know, but it's just we should know what we're doing. You know, we're, we're practicing grasping, grasping at conditions, assuming that that will make me happy, instead of receiving the conditions that are showing up and practicing not grasping, not trying to extract happiness from the conditions, but gravitating or orienting toward the happiness of non-grasping. So this is one of the advantages of, you know, getting um, consumed by life, like having kids, for example, or, you know, I feel that way sometimes with my job. Not that it's a bad job, it's really a great job, but it is in some ways all-consuming. And uh, and there are times, like I was talking about today, where I, there's sort of panic will arise, like not seeing any end. <laughs> and then death starts to look so good. <laughs> like, well, someday I'll die, and then I won't have to do anything. <laughs> it's just a question like whether I can justify retirement before that time of death. But this is just this is just my stuff. That's where I'll realize. No, but I mean, I go there. But that would be that would resolve the problem of feeling overwhelmed by my life. Is like not grasping any of it, not identifying with being busy, not identifying with not doing all the things that need to be done, all the little things, you know, walking meditation, I noticed that one of the orange chairs, the little felt was off, you know, we just spent $4,000 having the floors redone in here over Thanksgiving, and the guy said, you know, your chairs are ruining your floors, you got to get rid of them, and you know, so I go, oh, I've got to find the perfect chair for the center. And in the meantime, we got to make sure these chairs aren't destroying the floor. By the way, keep the feet off the grates. Because <laughs> the grates ruin the felt on the, on the chairs. So. <laughs> I was hoping I'd be able to sneak that in somewhere. <laughs> The thought came up about making an announcement, but that didn't feel quite right. <laughs> this is another power that comes with practice is if your intentions are wholesome, they'll find a way to squeeze in. <laughs> so maybe I wasn't that attached about protecting the floors, or maybe it came from <clears throat> a place of compassion for all of us who appreciate nice floors. But anyway, so it's just a tricky business about um, working with grasping and really understanding that we have to really work right where the grasping is. We have to really feel it, and that's it. It's so that's the middle way. Ignoring it is not the middle way. Thinking that it's all perfect, <clears throat> including our grasping, is not the middle way. That's just being swept along the river. Feeling like we personally have to stop the grasping is like rowing upstream. We're never going to get across. So there's a middle way where 
<clears throat> we look for situations that, for most of us, we don't need a, an, an. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.